Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Yay! Hello, my friend. <laughs> uh, I'm in my office at home. I know. I feel like you've been gone for so, so long. Uh, three weeks. Yeah. I've missed you. Yeah. I've get, You know, I'm still jet lagged. It's interesting. I'm waking up at 430 in the morning. <laughs> but it is amazing how much you can get done. You wake up ready to go at 430 in the morning. Oh, so, no. <laughs> I've been getting a lot done. And then by 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, I've pretty much accomplished everything that I need to do for the rest of the day. So, okay. <laughs> but I've had a hard time staying awake past about eight o'clock at night. So uh, yeah. hopefully that's going to rearrange itself. Uh, just before we get started today, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and of course, good middle of the night for those of us waking at 430. <laughs> but I wanted to uh, tell you um, an an incident of Dr. Stu stupidity. Oh. A new category of our for the <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so remember when we were recording with uh Uma Mom and yeah. I couldn't, couldn't get my picture? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little switch on the top of the computer that you could switch the kids <laughs> off and on. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> shoving it into my case, probably traveling, it got jiggled and went off and uh, so I was working all along and I just didn't know it cause I'm stupid and uh, <laughs> no, that, <you're> not. <laughs> so funny. I, I text my tech guy yesterday. I said, it's not working and I'm in America. How come it's not working in America? He says, there's a little switch at the top of your computer. You probably got that. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. They don't want me to be seen. <laughs> no, but what's really great about that is, you know, how some people come to us with a medical issue that seems so simple for us to solve. Yeah. Well, that's what the tech guy did for me. That, that's my son, by the way. He's IT. So every time I call him, he's like, did you turn oh, it off? I should, have, I should have called him. So anyway, that's <laughs> that's some stupidity. I also want to thank our sponsor. I don't know if you got one, but I got a gift from Element. Um, they sent me a little coffee pot heater thing. You'll probably get it because it came, it came this morning. I hope they have my right address because I've been moving so much. <laughs> Oh, yeah, coffee thing that you can heat up like a cup of cup of coffee in it, and it's to use for their chocolate medley um, promotion. Oh, so, nice! Yeah, so even though we didn't really promote promote the chocolate medley in Not the yet. Element ad that's out there now, um, I'm promoting it right now. So, <laughs> <it's> Element. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a great time. Before I talk about England and Scotland. I just want to shout out to some friends in Armenia for the Michelle O'Dant conference that they're having there. I got to do a 45-minute uh, speech, um, and it wasn't live. I had, to, I had to talk to my computer for 45 minutes and then uh, send it by Dropbox to them. But I'm excited that I will reach out because Armenia is... It, you know, I learned a lot about Ireland and England while I was there, and it's not any better. It's probably worse than we have in the United States, and a lot of people might not think that, but it is. But Armenia, they've got a – midwives are illegal in Armenia. Armenia well, a home birth is illegal in Armenia, and midwives can only work under doctor supervision. And they have a 50% C-section rate. 
and they're the one of the worst countries in morbidity of Western countries in um, Europe. So they're not doing very well at all. Morbidity and, for maternal and and infant. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the statistic was. I just remember it was the fifth. It was it was five times worse than most other European countries. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's uh, you know, it's been I've been up now for seven hours, so it's <laughs> <laughs> got it. But it's 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 so backwards, and yet the patriarchal system that these countries have that keeps insisting that they're doing it for safety and then they don't but they don't bother to look at the entrails they've left behind them uh as far as 50 percent c-section rates and you know dissatisfaction and high episiotomy rates i mean ridiculous ridiculous numbers so i'm glad i got to speak there i i, I it will be interesting. I asked the people that know me to take note of how the people in the audience take a, a hold of it, because it, it is doctors mostly uh, that are going to be seeing this lecture. And I called it, you know, it's the lecture I usually give, only I made it special for Armenia, but it's uh, what mammals know and we have forgotten. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. And I know I'm talking a lot about me, and I know that you have things you want to talk about, but let me just say a little bit of a shout out. More about me. Shout it out to... Um, the Ireland people, but I, another shout out to Roz Drake in Ireland. And then, of course, to my hosts in England on the narrow boat, Serenity. Uh, we spent five days up in Leighton Buzzard. Uh, which we had to drive into town each day for the conference, but people can look up where Leighton Buzzard is. That's a town on, on a little uh, canal uh, about an hour and a half out north of London. And uh, so Shelly, Simon, Seb, uh, thank you. Interesting, they're all S names. <laughs> Ellie, Simon, Seb, Serenity. It's the name of the ship. But it was fun. It was fun. The boat's six feet wide, Liz. That's narrow. <laughs> right. It's narrower than our um, than our uh, RVs. Oh, it's a, oh yeah. You know, we we were comparing things, and especially because my RV has a side out. I think yours does too, right? No. Yours doesn't. Yeah. But it, it, it's, you know, it's, but it's a beautiful, they did a beautiful job fixing it up. And the conference was lovely. And there were, I think, 15. So we were, we were maxed out. And we had some really interesting people that joined us for this. Uh, some of our, you know, people that you may know, Kemi, Earth Joy yeah. was there. Uh, Sally Ann Beresford was there. I want to just shout out to Betsy and Kezi. And I'm going to forget, Tracy, I'm going to forget a lot of people's names. So I'm not going to do that. But it was so great. And then I don't know if people saw on Instagram the cupcakes that Shelly made, but they were the cutest things ever. <laughs> Describe them in case they didn't. Well, they were cupcakes with frosting that looked like vaginas with little feet or little butts coming out of them. Labia? Yeah, like labia. Excuse uh -huh. me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, with little, with little feet and butts coming out? Yeah, little breech feet. Little breech feet, little breech butts coming out. Cute. Bank reach. It was, it, I mean, she went to a lot of trouble, obviously, to make 30 cupcakes that each one was sort of unique. Uh, so that was a big hit. We all went out to dinner the first night at an Italian restaurant. It was great. There was a lot, you know, there was a lot of alcohol in Ireland there, that did not, that did not uh, end when I moved, when I went to um, 
England. So, <laughs> really good. so that, that I'm back and I'm trying to get, uh, you know, my feet flat on the ground again here and, and get off running because I've been watching, you know, the, the text messages you have with our crew and there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. By the time this comes out, we'll have done our first webinar. I hope that goes really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Well, I mean, you know, it's getting a little cooler here in Santa Barbara, but still beautiful. So I'm just, you know, I love it because I have clients that I can walk to. So I had yesterday I walked with my dog to my client's house and the dog sat in the front yard, my dog Zoe. And then I got on my bike and went and saw two other clients across town. So I didn't even get in my car at all yesterday, which was just, I love it. I have a little backpack with my with my uh, necessities for prenatal care or postpartum care. And, you know, you don't actually need that much. So that's been really delightful. Um, but I did have a couple of um, interesting things that transpired. I had a birth that I want to talk about with you. And then I also had, which I talked to you about, but I haven't shared on the podcast. I had a mom who is um, term who had a really big bleed. And so how we navigated that too. Um, so the the birth was a, you know, normal primate mom. Uh, she lives a little over an hour from me. So she was driving into Santa Barbara for all of her prenatal care. Um, and totally aligned values, like just really, a, you know, a great client to take care of. Um, and I got there and seemed like everything was moving completely straightforward. She was obviously having the urge to push. So we set up the tub. And even though she was a primate, I kind of feel like, you know, when it's so obvious that they are um, there, there's no really reason to check them. So we got her in the tub and, you know, she started instinctually pushing and then she was feeling, a, you know, a lot of first time moms have a hard time remembering that it's a slow and long process when you push out your first baby. So just really reassuring her. She said, how do you know that my cervix is out of the way? I said, because you're pushing. Like, you know, it's just obvious. And um, so this goes on for maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And you can just tell that she just was not, she was um, having some symptomology that was a little concerning. Like she felt like she was going to pass out. She was like, you know, talking about being really, really tired. Um, And so then she asked me again if I would check her because she had a feeling that her cervix was in the way. And I said, sure. Lo and behold, she had a big fat lip. And so I was like, yeah, you should always trust the moms. Always. Right. Yeah. 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 So. um, So, yeah, I was like, yeah, you have a lip. Um, I don't necessarily think that that is a reason to not push. Um, although I know that that's different in the Western medicine world, but it was thick. It did not feel, and this is a mom who holds on to fluids. Like she got super swollen during her pregnancy. Um, I felt like when I felt her belly at the last visit, she had a lot of amniotic fluid. Um, so it's just, it's just part of how her physiology works. So um, I asked her to see if she could get in a hands and knees position, butt in the air and try and not push for a little bit and see if things shifted. Because um, if she's on her hands and knees, then the contractions are kind of pushing the baby towards that cervix. And sometimes it can help it melt away. Um, It was really hard for her not to push. And so I told her that I could try and help push that cervix out of the way, which is not something I like to do. 
Um, but I felt like this mom was kind of on that teetering on that edge of calling it. And so you want to do the best you can to support them through that. And so I said, you know, I can do this. It's going to be uncomfortable. If you want me to, I can try it. So we did that. We pushed um, a little bit and got the cervix out of the way. And then we continued to, to be able to just push as we normally would. Um, well, just like I always say, when you intervene with the process, sometimes there's a ripple effect. So what do you think happens, Stu? Mean, as she's pushing. What happened as she's pushing? Yeah. Cord prolapse. No. <laughs> Thank <laughs> God. Thank God that didn't happen. No. Uh, baby's head came out to probably just above the chin. Oh. No rest. Mm -hmm. oh. Okay. Very, very, very slow crown and no restitution. So the those of you who don't know these terms, the baby's head never rotated towards the thigh and um there wasn't really a turtling effect, but I definitely start to see a purple. Um so flipped her over onto her hands and knees, um put one leg up, tried to push nothing nothing nothing. So I decided to go in with my hands and try and um release one of the arms and nothing. So, um, we turned her back over and did super pubic pressure, um, and was able to release the baby. It was a, it was not a long dystocia. It was probably less than two minutes. Um, and the baby was, um, a little over eight pounds. So I started to think about like what that would have been like with a 10 pound baby, you know? Um, but so that happened. And then what happens often with the shoulder dystocia is, uh, you know, we have the baby needs a little bit of help. And then we had a hemorrhage. And, you know, it was just one of those where all the things happened all at once. And that's why we have two skilled sets of skilled hands at every birth, just in case mom and baby both need something simultaneously. So it was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, free birth is great. And these are those moments when you're really glad that you have somebody with you. And I was thinking about it, you know, I'm always very critical of myself when I step in. So I always have to like really sit back over the next few days and really process and make sure that there wasn't something that I stepped in too soon. And, and I was sharing with somebody, I was like, you know, for me, I love it when it's like this beautiful choreographed birth and the mom is, um, the mom looks back on her experiences like, look what I did and I don't have to do anything. But the truth of the matter is I have to remember that that's why we're hired. We're hired to step in when there's complications. And these were true the complications. This was like obviously really needed support. So that was interesting. You should feel really good about that, Bliss. I mean, the, the comment about the 10 pounder, though, I, I'm going to pull back a little bit and say, most 10 pounders don't have that problem. So no, no, uh, no. I'm saying if I was trying to release a baby that was two pounds heavier than this baby, that's just what came to my mind. I was like, oh yeah, yeah that would have been in the shoulder girdle. That could be, that, that would be a problem. But mm -hmm. what you, what you've used the skill that you've learned and the skill of when not to use it, but knowing it, this is the primary thing that we teach at the breach trainings that we do is that, mm -hmm. you know, this there's a thing that used to be out there called hands off the breach. That was something that really sh swung the pendulum way too far. But what's important to know is that most of the time you don't have to do much. 
But it's those times when you have to do something that you need to know what to do. And that you tried, you, you did everything systemic and you got a, you got a baby that's fine. Yeah, that can happen. But that's not a reason that she needs to be, uh, it's, by the way, it's more likely to happen in the hospital anyway, because they'll have an epidural, they'll be flat on their back and they'll put a vacuum on and they'll do that. But it's not that she has to be in a hospital to handle a shoulder dystocia. And I don't think you're probably telling her that her next baby she should have a C-section for. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. But maybe don't push the cervix out of the way. Like that poor couple that we talked about months ago. Yeah. Uh, happens a lot. Yeah. That happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you, you had something else you wanted to say? Yeah. So I had a mom who delivered vaginally 12 years ago, home birth um, at 37 weeks, was expecting to have her baby early. She's 39 weeks, really wants to have a baby. I get a phone call at five in the morning and I think, oh, she's in labor. And her partner, her husband, called and said um, she's having a lot of bright red bleeding. And um, I said, okay, I'll head over because Santa Barbara's really small. And so I knew that I was going to just evaluate and assess because sometimes normal bleeding for labor can look scary to other people and, you know, be able to listen to the baby and then make an assessment. Well, I got there and it was a considerable amount of blood. I didn't, I didn't even take the time to look in the toilet, but I would say on the tissues in front of her, it was at least 200 cc's with clots and it was not normal. She wasn't in labor. She wasn't having any contractions. Um, just got a heart tone on the baby and then rushed over to Cottage Hospital. Um, and, you know, they never were really able to tell us what what the cause of the bleeding is. I had yep. one doctor who came in who did a vaginal exam and an ultrasound on her and said she was abrupting, which is what I thought was possible, was a either a partial abruption just the very um, edge probably because with a real abruption you're going to have generally pain. some fetal heart changes and some pain right yeah and um and like hypertonic right like really lots of contractions yeah so um my friend our friend of the podcast um melissa drake just happened to be coming in and so i asked her if she would come in and talk to us and she had a totally different opinion than this to oh that doctor said she was abrupting and said we need to go in for a c-section and my client of course freaked out Right. And then Melissa comes in. She's like, I don't think you're having an abruption. These are the things that we would see if you were having a true abruption. I, I think this is probably cervical, like a polyp or something like that. But because you are bleeding, I think we should probably induce you. So we were trying to figure it out. And Melissa wasn't going to be the one who was going to be taking care of us. It was another doctor who was actually quite lovely and did was not pushy at all. And my client wanted to go home and pack a bag and prepare herself because she wasn't bleeding anymore, really. It had slowed down. Um, she wasn't having any contractions. They monitored the baby. Everything looked totally fine. So she, so they said, okay, you're going to have to check yourself out AMA. So I'm like, okay, we're going home AMA with the bleed. But she was planning to go back to the hospital. And so then she thought, well, I did casserole last time. It worked so well. Why don't I get contractions going before we go back? And so I was like, all right, fine. So we did castor oil, no contractions, no bleeding. Everything seems stable. She decides to stay home. So now, Stu, we're a week and a half later, no bleeding. We went in and did a biophysical profile. Everything looked good on the baby. She's con she's consulted with a local doctor who, if she decides to um, induce, um, she has this doctor on board that she feels comfortable with at this point. Um but everything is really stable. So, you know, 
she wanted me to try and do things to get going at home. And I was like, I'm really uncomfortable with doing a vaginal, um, like doing a sweep or doing anything to push labor at this point, because I really feel like the body has a wisdom and maybe you just need time to heal this thing. And um, so the plan is that we're going to continue to work towards um, a home birth unless there's another bleed. Then we would absolutely go in right away. Um, she's very uncomfortable. So it's possible she's just going to decide to get an induction because she's so uncomfortable. But um, yeah, it was a really interesting kind of navigating that whole world and the difference between OBs that came in within maybe an hour of each other and how they managed it was really interesting to watch. I would say so. I would think that that when you have this sort of thing, obviously in the medical model, everybody's always nervous all the time. So without stoning even a little bit snarky, the only thing that really matters to a doctor when someone comes in with the bleeding or something that's, that's abnormal is how do I get as fast as possible a live baby in the bassinet? Yeah. And the idea of suggesting a C-section, while not wrong, is certainly not the only option and certainly not giving true informed consent when you don't really have an etiology. It's not continuing. The baby's fine. You don't really know where it's came from. So was it a small partial edge separation? Probably. Because where else would that much blood come from? Yeah, uh, it's weird. Is it likely to cause a problem in the future? Nobody knows. But if it does cause another abruption, you know, it could be really rapid and quick and could be a problem, but most likely it's not going to be. And that's where the patient has made her decision that she's been well-informed because she's gotten a lot of information and probably another week to scan the internet for other stuff. Very and, much. Yeah. <laughs> decided to stay home and wait and see what happens. And and again, she's a multip, I guess, because you said she's had this gastro before. So it's likely that when things go, they'll go very quickly and she'll have a vaginal birth and hopefully you'll make it to the house in time. <laughs> <laughs> I me too. I hope it's at home. I really do. But whatever, whatever's meant to be at this point, I trust. Uh, okay. Well, I was going to do a couple of timely news articles, but you know what? We don't have time. So yeah, I, I told next week, but it's about some foolhardiness going on in Alabama and Kentucky, uh, things that are, you know, people have probably read about, but I really wanted to give our take on it because there's some really dumb stuff in there uh, and some really tyrannical stuff. And, but, but we don't have time because we do have a guest on today. And it's a guest I know very well because I stayed in her tiny little narrow longboat um, for five days and her name's Shelly Poulter. And I'm going to bring her in now, but I wanted to say that um, not only do I, am I bringing her in because I'm, I'm missing a British accent. <laughs> Sorry. She's actually very, very wise. Yeah. She's more than just a doula. Um, and she wrote an article that I was just, that overwhelmed me. I sent it to you. I don't know if you had a chance to scan it over this morning. I did. Called the birth space supportive or coercive. And she, I'll let her do the, I'll let her do the talking, but she is um, uh, uh, an author and she's a trained osteopath and, and naturopathic medicine. And she graduated in 2005. She's been working as a doula and a cranial sacral therapist. She's a mentor and a lecturer for 17 years. She teaches birthing biomechanics and trauma-informed nonviolent communication, uh, as well as holding monthly 
bite-sized birth lectures, and safe discussion spaces for birth workers. You can find her on social media at the Serenity Doula on Instagram. Her website is www.surprisingly, the Serenity And she's coming to us from my seat. She's sitting in my seat. I've stolen your spot, Steve. <laughs> my spot. Oh, it's good to you again. It's been two days. I missed you. Uh, you missed us already. <laughs> Welcome, Shelly. Hi, Bliss. Um, it's lovely to meet you. Goddess Bliss. Wow. <laughs> and many of you, I... many, oh, go ahead. Many of you might know Shelly. If you do our Instagram, she does these videos with what I call Dr. What do I call her? Dr. Dr. Gloomy. Dr. Gloomy, right. Dr. Gloomy and talking to it. So you might know her, but but go ahead, Bliss. I interrupted. Sorry. No, that's okay. I was going to say the same thing because we think alike so many times. Um, I was going to say I love, love, love your posts on Instagram. I think that they're so informative and so fun. And um, if you guys haven't seen her um, reels on Instagram, you should definitely check out Serenity Doula on Instagram because... They're chock full of goodness. So I'm so glad that you joined us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So we, I want to talk, you, know, you you overwhelmed me with some of the stuff we talked about. We, we had a lot of time to talk. Uh, we spent a lot of time together, either traveling in the car, back and forth. By the way, um, I got very used to, in, in Ireland of driving on the uh, left side of the road. And Shelly, it was a little weird when I pulled out of the airport parking lot here in St. George. To oh. myself to look left instead of looking right it was just sort of a it was a it was a weird thing um but we one of the things we talked about a lot was the, the term the use of coercion and the idea that there's a lot of similarities between um abusive behavior and what goes on in the hospital and i want to get to that in a second but i want to start by reading a letter uh from nakota and uh, to see, just kind of ease us into it. And we'll take it from there. So she writes, hi, Dr. Sue. I don't know if you remember me because we only actually met once. I came to your office almost five years ago, sent by my midwife, Lindsay Milis, another friend of the podcast, after experiencing postpartum psychosis four months after having my first baby. I was scared and I didn't know where to go or how much I could say before someone would separate me from my baby while still saying enough to get help. I've been thinking of you a lot because you were so compassionate, and I'm not reading this to toot my horn, please. Uh, understanding, help me get more time on disability to rest and recover while making sure I could reach you if needed. Even though you had never met me before, you cared and you helped me. I did recover. I actually started working as a parent advocate, speaking up and sharing my experiences at conferences and events and consulting with organizations to encourage better support for new pa parents. I had a second baby and I had the support in place I needed and did not experience psychosis again. I am now due any day with my third and have had very different experiences with medical professionals this time. I am again using a licensed midwife for a home birth and I have had medical needs outside of the scope of my midwife. For example, a cough that has lasted for the last three months. I have tried going to my insurance assigned primary care doctor. Um, and he has refused to even have a discussion with me. All right, so I'm looking at you both. Um, my feeling is that, that like a lot of dentists, a lot of primary care doctors are so scared of pregnant women 
that they don't want to even touch them. He told me he would be liable for any care he provided for the next 18 years. This was the language he used. And yeah. instructed me not to ask him any questions. Keep, keep this in mind. He insisted my midwife must be working under a doctor, so he's unaware of the laws in California. And I am just unaware of it. And the doctor she is under, or an OBGYN, are the only people who can help me because of the pregnancy. So no other doctor can help a pregnant woman except the doctor, the fictitious doctor, <laughs> who's supervising a midwife who doesn't need doctor supervision. So When you're pregnant, you are only a uterus and a baby. The rest of you ceases to exist and need other medical care. That's right. And you're a uterus that most people don't want to even get close to because they can, they see you, again, taught in medical school, taught in residency, in the environment they live in, taught, talked to by their OB colleagues in the hospital, that you're a liability. She says, she gets into that. I went to an in-network OBGYN and she was visibly distressed talking to me. She also, in, so she, again, she went to an in-network one, so she chose to use her insurance. I understand why people do that, but it's also often a huge mistake. She also insisted my midwife must be working under a doctor and that I should go to them. So she doesn't know either what the laws are in California. They, and, they, and by the way, they don't care to actually find out either. They don't even bother. She says she doesn't know what care I've gotten, even though I came as prepared as possible with my labs and my printed medical records with, with me. And she wasn't comfortable even referring me to a specialist or doing anything because I wasn't fitting the model of care they normally provide. Yeah, they just don't know what to do. You go outside of a box, it's like all hell breaks loose. Yeah, but they don't, but they've they've lost the humanity. Talk yeah. to a person. Yeah. I'm 37 weeks pregnant and I'm still coughing. And I'm left with nothing I can do but trial and error, home remedies, and joke that I'll probably cough this baby out any day now. I wish more doctors were like you guys and were willing to help when they came across someone in need, even when they don't fit in a standard box. I love your podcasts and thank you for all that you've done and everything you do. You've made a world of difference for me when I was scared, when I was a scared new mom and needed someone to help. And so I wrote her back and I said, dear Nakota, thanks for sharing your story. These doctors are heartless and stupid. Not a good combination. May I share your letter on the podcast? By the way, she said yes. And I said, so glad you're doing well. I have no offhand thoughts on why you are coughing. And with all the nefarious shenanigans from our government and pharma going on, it's hard to tell without listening to your lungs and doing a few tests, allergies, that sort of thing. I hope it gets sorted. I'm not in California anymore. And then she wrote back and said, I absolutely don't mind you sharing on the podcast. I will definitely get the cough sorted. So she, she used the word sorted, Shelly. I love that. That's like a British word. It's looking like it will simply be after baby comes and I can take off my liability badge. So she Aww. said, someone will see me when I'm not pregnant. It's ridiculous. However, she writes really well. It's just stra so strange to me that our medical system seems to be rejecting me from care solely based on how I'm choosing to give birth. It's like using a licensed midwife has made them see me as a liability hot potato. And if it's happening to me, I'm sure there are many others out there. Thank you again for choosing to be different in a medical system that does not make it easy. You could have chosen to hot potato me too. 
with that uncommon situation in my first pregnancy. Um, I was in a very vulnerable place when we met. I'm so glad Lindsay Milas had sent me to you. Sincerely, Nakoda. So I just wanted to put that in there because even though it's tangentially related to the things that you were talking about, I've got a very meowing cat here, if you happen to hear. She has not left my side since Aww. I've had... <laughs> so, Three weeks is a long time. Yeah, it was a long time. I'm, by the way, people, I had a cat sitter. She wasn't here by herself for three weeks. <laughs> so, um, what's your thought about what Nakota had to go through and how does it relate to you know the topic of coercion and support and language that you are so familiar with? Well, I think that it's uh, often a, a thing with the medical model in that um, if you are a nameless person, if you're not, you know, Blitz or Sue that you want to take care of, that you know a little bit about, it's easier to be more detached and easier to do things to somebody or not do things to somebody when actually they need them and need that compassion just by having that distance. And in an institutionalized model of care, that happens a lot, um, partly because the people in that institution are traumatized and they are not addressing that trauma. Uh, I don't know what it's like in America, but here in the UK, the, the, the mental health support for workers in the NHS is non-existent. So it means that you know medical staff see traumatic things all the time and are therefore trying to work in a state of trauma. And if we're looking at the, the kind of polyvagal theory, where we have the different systems. So you start with the really basic thing that the bugs have, like dorsal parasympathetic system. So they have a, a playing dead system, a freeze response to trauma. Then a little few millennia later, you get the, uh, the sympathetic system. So we know that of oh, that is the fight, flight. Um, and in women, the fawn response, oh. which many people don't know so much about because the research was mainly done in men. So in women, we have this tendency to fawn to people if we're in a stressful situation, we try to befriend them. And in, in a birth situation, that's accentuated by the hormonal fluctuations that we have. So the prola our prolactin levels and the oxytocin levels as we're going through pregnancy and then we're going through labor, they're changing and shifting and making us more compliant and making us more trying to engender uh, safety with people by doing what they say, even, and a lot of women, I, I, you guys may get this as well, where people say, well, I really wouldn't, didn't want to do that, but they told me it was safer for me and a baby. And, and so I went along with it and I don't know why I said yes. I don't know why I said yes to that because I didn't want it, but I just felt like I had to at the time. Um, and then if you are in a calm state where your trauma is sorted, you're into the ventral vagus. So we're using cognition there. And in that state, we're able to communicate with people and we're looking to form connection. But I think I really think that a lot of medics are, are never in that state. They're, they're in this sympathetic state, this fight or flight state all the time. So they are seeing we, we kind of become hyper aware of signs of danger. So if a family comes to us and says, okay, I want to do this that's outside of outside of guidelines or outside of what the person's used to, it's a sign of danger. And so then the, the medical people see it as an attack. And so they're more likely to say, well, no, you can't do that and, and become you know aggressive towards people, which is what a lot of people are getting. And also in a way to not form connection, because if you form connection with somebody and then something goes wrong, 
that that really hurts us you know we really feel that deeply so if you don't form that connection and the person stays faceless they stay as just patient x or whatever it is then you then are not so traumatized by that situation so we've got a lot of people who are traumatized treating people in a way that is trying to keep a distance from them so that they don't get more traumatized. And when somebody is faceless, like in Star Wars, where we have the stormtroopers, you know, it's easier to hurt somebody that we don't know. They're just a number. You know, they're not, they're not bliss or stew, and we want to care for them and look after them. Um, and that kind of thing happens. And so it makes it easier for coercive control to happen in a, in a situation and if you control somebody to do things that feel safe for you and within your remit of what feels safe then that's good and if you don't know them and you don't really feel that deep connection with them it doesn't really matter what their opinion is they just need to do what they're told and that feels safer for you as a as a person so in this under the guise of informed consent really what's happening is medics are assuming that you will give consent to the course of action that they deem is appropriate. And if you don't agree to taking that course of action, what they do is escalate the pressure on you until you do agree. So it's okay, well, we're going to book you in for this scan or we're going to do this vaginal exam or whatever it is. And you say, oh, well, no, no, thank you. That's, that's not what I want. Well, what do you mean you don't want that? That's what everybody does. Okay, yeah, but that doesn't feel right for me. Okay, yeah, but you wouldn't want to hurt your baby, would you? You want this this is safe for yeah, your baby. You so then we're starting to get into using the baby as a weapon to make you do what, what we want to do. And when I was looking into it, um I, I, I wrote a paper for the Ames um journal in the UK, which is a peer-reviewed journal, about this. And I, I kind of was thinking, hold on, the way that doctors and 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 in, in this country, uh, midwives as well are speaking to patients to try and get them to do what they want to do it's like an abusive relationship. And I looked through on the Women's Aid, which is a refuge um, type organization that looks after women who are fleeing domestic abuse and domestic violence, uh, some points about what what constitutes this. So if you're in a relationship and you're not, okay, I'm not sure, what, I'm looking for red flags here, what's actually going on. And I went down through the 13 points and every single one of them correlated with how <laughs> my clients were being treated by medics, so there are kind of thirteen points. Before so, we get to that, Shell, Shell, yeah, yeah, you get, Sorry, you're getting I'm way, you're getting, you. you're getting way ahead of me. I got, I got, I got lots of points, and I'm sure Bliss does too. So let's stop there for a second and catch up. Bliss, what is Element? L M N T. It's a amazing sponsor. First of all, we love them so much, but it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS like us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have a um, thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure, and supports muscle function, mood, and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we 
before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I've spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, they've been doing really well and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite uh, is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine and yours is mango chili. Yeah. But I, I do have, I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts all one word and when you do that you'll get a free sample pack with your every order go do it go do it i just want to sort of summarize by saying that what you're saying makes so much sense because the people in the medical system the, what you call the medics or the the doctors and the nurses are so freaking traumatized that they then their coping mechanism then dumps onto the patients and the whole thing just sort of spirals out of control. You wrote something here um, that, I, that I made a note. It says how people are treated at the time of their birth is etched in their minds. The words spoken to them and the way they were treated in the perinatal space is remembered more vividly than the physical pain and discomfort of the labor itself. And that is so true. And so it's, it's almost like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People go into the hospital on nervous. The doctors don't, they, they don't know how to deal with somebody who has a difference of opinion. That's why there's always this war with the doulas. We talked about a lot of that at the conference that, and you and I talked about it too, that, that hospitals are really happy when, when there's no doula, they don't like it when there's a doula because that, and, and the reason you're saying is not because these are bad people, but these are traumatized birth workers or healthcare workers. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you don't go into looking after people into a profession to become a doctor or a midwife to abuse people. You you know, I, I, I mean, obviously, there may be a few odd psychopaths out there that, that that is their intention. But I really think that the vast majority of people are there and want people to have the best experience and to feel cared for and and all that kind of thing. And then they're getting into a state where they're not able to care for people anymore because it's too much. And one more thing before Bliss chimes in. You said that the, that the, the medical system uh, believes that, the, that, the, that women have unrealistic expectations about birth and that it's these unrealistic expectations that are leading to the high rates of post-traumatic stress disorders in the women, not the way they're, <laughs> not the way they're treated. But you say PTSD is more likely to occur following events which are perceived to have been intentionally perpetrated as opposed to accidents that might happen or bad, even bad outcomes if they're perceived that everybody did what was in their best interest. It's the way they're treated that leads to more trauma. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you've got a calm presence in a room, even if all hell's breaking loose, blood going everywhere, if you've got someone saying, I'm here with you, you know, this is happening now, but we are doing everything we can to make sure that, you know, we come out of this as best we can. You know, not 
lying to anybody, but just being that calm presence with them, it helps to reduce the level of trauma. It's, you know, like a paramedic turning up to an accident, as soon as they're there and they're speaking calmly to you, it helps to reduce the level of trauma that you're experiencing. But if you are in a busy hospital unit and that's not happening and everyone's running around the room like headless chickens and pressing buzzers and panicking, and there's no one looking at you and being with you, then the, the trauma is amplified. And that is that is also really important in terms of partners because often, you know, husbands or partners are just pushed to the side, get out the way, we've got to save the day. And they're left in the corner staring at, the, the madness that is happening and if they don't have someone with them holding a space safe space for them and helping them you know to to get through this difficult time it, it amplifies the trauma um i thought that part of your article in the beginning where you talk about that um women are being blamed for their ptsd was pretty incredible um yeah that's it's, it's really, I don't know why it surprises me because we do this to women all the time, but, you know, invalidating their feelings and making it about them and blaming them rather than, as you mentioned, the system itself, Stu, um, is quite shocking. And I, I definitely felt like that was an important thing to discuss today. Um, as you were mentioning, you know, the way to support someone through a traumatic event. Um, you know, before you came on, I shared with um, Stu about a birth story that I had this week of a shoulder dystocia, a baby needing some support and a hemorrhage kind of all happening simultaneously at home. And, you know, one of the great things about this model that we have um, with midwifery care is the continuity of care. So, in the moments that the the traumatic events, quote unquote, were happening, it's really hard to always be able to assess what you're doing, think about spatially what's happening, con make eye contact, assure people, especially the dad who is, you know, kind of off to the side. You are focused and and doing what you know you need to do and you don't always have the space to be able to say all the things that you would say if you had time to be able to do that but there is this possibility in the postpartum period to continue to talk about what happened and you know that night when I talked to them are you okay do you have any questions no 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 they were just so happy that everybody was fine they didn't have anything to say but in the postpartum visit that was a couple of days later, they were able to voice how scary that was and how they noticed that my face changed and something was more serious. And, and we were able to talk about that and hear out what they had to say and answer some of the questions. And, you know, it's a very different experience than if you have this traumatic event in the hospital and you have nobody to process with. So another great reason to have a doula by your side to be able to have that continuity of care, someone who knows you, someone who knows what's important to you, so that if you are in that fawn state of the parasympathetic, that you have someone else who can remind you or your husband of what you discussed was important to you, because you might not be in that place to be able to do that and be able to process that trauma later on, because the nurse or the doctor that was caring for you may not necessarily be someone you even have access to later. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Right. 
So, so yeah, Shelley, having that time that... to reflect. Oh, sorry, Steve. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, having that up. time to re to reflect with someone over the birth is really helpful. And I always say to my students that it's really important that as as birth workers, you know, as doulas, we're not the, we're not the hero here of the story. You know, I always say with the Sherpas, you know, we we are accompanying somebody on this journey. We're saying, okay, there's this path, and these are the good things about these this path, and these are maybe the more challenging things about it. Or we've got this path which choice do you want to make? I'm walking with you, whichever you decide. When you get to the summit and they're celebrating being there, you're in the background holding the bags, taking the photos, you know, you're celebrating with them, but it's it's not about you. And But the important thing is, is that you've got to go back down that mountain and later on that day or a week or a month or whenever your next person is that you're looking after, you've got to do it again. And maybe the bags are going to be heavier next time and maybe the road's going to be more difficult. So So processing you know, yourself as a birth worker is so important. Um, and and when somebody says, oh, you you carried my bags, you did everything, you you made it possible. You know, no, 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 <laughs> no, you did that. Yeah, right. you did that. And right. that reframing of you did amazingly in this moment. I, you know, I can't believe how calm you were at this point. That was such an amazing thing. You know, this was actually quite a scary thing to happen. I hear that, you know, and we're talking about it now. But look what you did. Look how, you know, amazingly you did that. And that really helps people to to reframe the, the situation as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an important part of it too. Absolutely. And I, you know, another part of your article, which I, I really want to acknowledge you for, is talking about the trauma in birth workers. Um, you said at one point, the trauma in the birth space is felt by everyone, the mom, the baby, the, the doctors, the nurses, the doulas. And we talk to birth workers all the time who are holding trauma from experiences that they witness. And I do think that I've talked about this before as a midwife that it's our personal responsibility to do the work, to be able to come into the room next time and really come from a space of nothing so that they can have their own individualized experience without your trauma or your fear influencing that. And I think that it's hard to do that when you don't have a lot of space in between shifts or births, if you don't have that time to process that. I always try and give myself at least a whole day the next day to not have to do anything for anyone else. And that gives my mind the opportunity to be able to replay some of those things and maybe reach out to a colleague and say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, um, so I, I think that that is such an important part of this because we do kind of villainize sometimes people that it seems like they've perpetrated a, a birthing family. But it's really good to get that whole context that we're all feeling traumatized by this system. We're all feeling traumatized by the cultural perspective that we held. And that I think you also said something about like, how are we going to change this if we don't talk about it? And that's been a theme with the podcast over the last several weeks of like, yeah, sometimes people are going to get offended when we start to talk about some of the interventions that happened to them, like a C-section or things like that. They're going to be like, but that you know, that bond, that trauma bond that happens sometimes when they've believed that their life was saved when it was really something that probably was caused from fear or or fear of litigation or all of these other things. But I think it is important for us to be able to speak out and say, 
this isn't necessarily okay. And if, if no one is saying that, then a family can't necessarily recognize that. And they just go through life feeling traumatized. This is, this is very interesting to listen to you guys talk about this because, because the system that doctors are find themselves working in partially through some fault of their own and partially through no fault of their own, the way the system has developed in the medical model, not excuse this sort of behavior, but what Shelley has written explains why doctors can be so uh, abrupt and dogmatic sometimes. And, you know, we see these videos on Instagram where a doctor's talking to a patient, like the famous one that came out not, not too long ago, um, where the doctor was talking really down to a, a, a person and, or somebody says something like, you know, what medical school did you go to or whatever else there? What we need to think of as, as clients or patients is we need to think, wait, you know, um, you just, you just need a hug. You know, there's, <laughs> the system doesn't allow them to have a hug because they're, because they're, they're task oriented and it's monetary and they're moving on to the next task. And, and then Shelly, you said, with many midwives and doctors suffering suffering secondary trauma, their language is frequently aimed not to communicate and form connections, but to control and coerce people. You saw this very early on in the conversation today to choose the path that feels safest to the doctor. This lack of connection is a further self-protective behavior. Um, again, another condemnation of the the system that has developed these doctors through medical school trial by fire through residency trial by fire getting yelled at uh by their attending physicians getting uh pressured by administrators um by the risk management lawyers of the hospital having to live in that world you 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 are you are you're not post traumatic stress syndrome we need a new name for it it's called ongoing traumatic stress syndrome or something like that of that nature because this is this is ongoing and we see it every day. And now when I hear this and I see the behavior on, on in my own memory or just things I see on, on the news or I read uh, what people write to me, I can immediately see what Shelley has described is this is this defense mechanism, this polyvagal thing, which I, I would love, Shelley, for you to maybe take two or three, four or five minutes and really dive deep into into that whole thing about fawning and about and that we've had Kimberly Ann Johnson on and it was on podcast uh, three twelve uh, where we talked about it, but not in this sort of context that you are. So I, I think it's really interesting because a lot of people hear polyvagal something and they'll go over their head and they'll never think about it again. But if you could take a minute or two to just really do the dive. So Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition. That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter 
when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if you're pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. I think, um, you know, in terms of thinking about how we react and interact in situations, uh, we have been uh i mean the skills that we need to sort of interact in a compassionate way are not the skills that we are taught societally so we're educated from a very young age to contribute to the structures of society in that there are superiors that tell us what to do and know better than us and we do what we're told and as women especially we are taught to sit still be quiet be a good girl do what we're told so in the school, you know, you're sitting there thinking, I really need to go to the toilet. I I'm bursting. I'm desperate here. You know, you have to put your hand up to ask permission to the authority, to the teacher that's maybe teaching you things that they think are important, but maybe to you aren't really important. So it's not filling you with joy, but you're having to learn what you're being told you need to learn. And you say, please, may I have permission to go to the restroom? And they say, no, you need to wait till the end of the lesson. Now is not the time. So what are we then teaching our, our small children? That we don't listen to what our bodies need? That we ignore those really strong sensations in our body that are telling us that we need to do something? And when we're then being told by an authority outside of us that it's perceived as higher and knowing better than us, that we need to sit still and be quiet and ignore those feelings in our body. So we've been taught that from a tiny age. And so it's very difficult then when we go into a birthing situation, which, you know, we're having really big influxes of hormones in ways that we've never had before in our life. It's our, if it's our first pregnancy um, that are affecting our emotions and how we're feeling and are directing us in a way that's trying to keep us and our baby safe. Um, and we've been taught our whole lives, well, this person outside of me knows better than me about my body, so I should listen to them and do what I'm told. Even if inside us, 
we're thinking this isn't right. I don't I don't feel right about this. And that leads to trauma afterwards, because then when we reflect on it later, we think, I really didn't want that person's hands in my vagina. Uh, I felt really violated by that. Um, and, you know, was it really needed? And then people see things like you say, Bliss, that they go, oh, hold on. They're saying on this podcast that that kind of thing wasn't needed. But they told me I needed that. Did I not need that? I really didn't want that. But I was told I had to have it. So did I have to have it? And it leaves you with this whole, you know, you get in a spiral don't you, of a situation. Um, and so like tying that within, in with polyvagal. So the, the polyvagal theory is that, that we have these kind of three levels of, of our ability to interact in stressful situations. And so when you think of more primitive creatures like bugs and things, if they are really terrified, if they're really frightened, they just play dead. You know, they pretend they're dead. So that's the freeze response. So uh, as people, if we become really terrified, often people will become catatonic. They won't be able to respond or speak or say anything. They disassociate. So their mind goes off somewhere else. Now, in a hospital, this can be seen as somebody being very compliant. So as a doula, it's something I'm really watchful for in my clients. If their gaze is just sort of going away into nothing and they're not really looking at anything, and they're going very quiet or a little bit limp, or maybe they were saying, no, I don't want this, and then that suddenly stops. That's a really big red flag for me that somebody is is in such a frightened state that their, their nervous system is so frightened that it's like, I cannot cope with this, I'm shutting down. So as a doula, I would get in really close to that person, call them by name, say, you know, Bliss, I'm here with you. I am, you know, I'm looking at you right now. I want you to just breathe with me. I want you to breathe with me and take some breath. And a really good way to help with the autonomic nervous system when it's going out of kilter is to use the breath. And if we take a breath in, and then the out breath is longer than the in breath. So say we take a breath in for four, and then you breathe out for longer than that. So in for four, out for more is something that a lot of people say is a good rhythm to remember it. It helps um, to uh, stimulate the vagus nerve in a way that reduces the heart rate and gets that breathing kind of more under control. We're reducing that adrenaline spike and, and that um, kind of nature of things going going off on, in a spiral. Um, in in the next stage up, um, see now I'm saying it, I won't remember the name. Um, there we go. So in the sympathetic state. So that's the one that people sort of know of, the fight flight. So people think, okay, so when you're in a difficult situation, are you going to fight against the person or are you going to try and run away? Um, and it, they, when they were studying this kind of thing, they did it in men. <laughs> they didn't look at women. And in women, we also have a form. So if we're in an awkward situation, you know, say there's somebody coming up to us, you know, being a bit touchy-feely or wanting to get in a personal space, often we'll be nice to that person in a kind of like trying to get rid of them, but being a nice way rather than just telling them to go away or, uh, you know, getting physical with them. Because we, you know, our, our, our nervous system knows that physically we're, we're not going to be able to fight off most assailants. Most of us are not... Uh, good at um, martial arts or anything like that so we have to use a different way of doing that so in in birth we're getting you know as you're getting closer to the end of pregnancy we're getting a massive increase in prolactin uh, which is the hormone that helps us uh, with lactation but it also makes us fiercely protective 
of our of our babies um and it uh, actually dips down during labor and then as you're getting close to the end of labor it, it it comes up really steeply towards the end if you're if you're having a physiological birth um and as that's coming up along with the oxytocin going up hugely it makes us much more likely to do things if someone says this is good for the safety of your baby we're we're much more likely to be compliant about it um prolactin helps us to um to do things repetitive tasks or difficult monotonous things with babies so that we don't mind about it happening after birth so it's important for that increase but it also makes us much more vulnerable to coercive behavior from from people in the birth space um so what's fascinating yeah. about that if, Shelley, if, is you just taught you just taught me something yeah. new that i didn't know another consequence of of altering the physiology of labor we, I, I talk about epidurals, I talk about Pitocin, and I talk about all that. I didn't know that, but but you're saying that prolactin has this normal cycle of dropping and then rising when you and you added in a physiologic birth, which means to me when you say that, that in a in a scheduled birth or a augmented birth or a traumatic birth, that's not going to happen. And that's going to have downstream consequences as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's part of that that thing that they see in epidurals when you're blocking that that feedback of the hormones happening, that people find, you know, report that their babies are more difficult. Um, you know, they're more they're they're a lot more harder work uh to look after them than people that have had a physiological birth where they've not had that interruption of the of the physiology. Um so yeah, it's a part of that too. And obviously with with stressful things happening in birth, we're getting a peak in adrenaline. And the adrenaline and oxytocin are antagonistic. Um, and so if you, you know, we get these natural peaks in adrenaline where the body's like checking in. Am I in, a, is this a safe space for me to have a baby? Am I surrounded by people who are safe for me to birth here? Because this is a really vulnerable situation to be in. And if you don't feel safe, your adrenaline stays high. And so your oxytocin doesn't build. And so then you start getting into the realms of, well, you're failing, failing to progress. It's taking too long. But what it is, is a failure of the environment you're in to help you to feel safe. Yeah, because why would your body make you completely vulnerable and birth your extremely vulnerable baby if you are not safe? It, it, you know, our bodies are very sensible. They're like, no, I don't want a baby coming in here when there's somebody shouting at me. And telling me I have to lie on the bed and I'm not allowed to move when it feels uncomfortable. You know, your body's being sensible. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so frustrated right now because everything you're saying makes so much sense to me. And the, and the hospital, in the guise of safety, does everything that's antithetical to what you just described. Yeah. It's it's the opposite. It's It's like we're in constant opposite day. And they and they and they are the ones that are sitting in judgment of how people like you or Bliss or me will talk about this. They'll think that we're, we're out there just where you know what do you you know why why do you care? You got a healthy baby and a healthy mom. It's like, do you really? Are they really healthy? Hmm. Let's talk about that. And what about the the baby growing up? What about the baby next generation? All that stuff. That there's none of that that cares because all this makes so much sense because nature designed it. And yes, you know, somebody could have a shoulder dystocia or a postpartum hemorrhage. Yes, they can. But 
we're, we're equipped to deal with that, but we don't have to treat every single woman as if these things are about to happen at every moment. And then by doing that, you screw up everything else. So it's kind of like that movie we talked about when I was, we were, we were visiting about team America world police, where they come in to protect Paris from the terrorists. And at the end of the thing, they got the terrorists, but Paris is in shambles. (laughs) (laughs) That's a funny movie to talk about, Stu. Um, I, I was thinking as, as you were talking about like, you know, a physiologic birth is it, this is a new term that we're using a lot. I've been around the birth world now for 30 plus years. And so it's interesting when you've been doing work for a really long time, you can see these patterns of like what's in favor and how we use language. It just changes. So physiologic describing things as physiologic rather than just natural kind of used to be like natural birth. Um, it's not just having a vaginal delivery and it's not just not having medications. And it's very difficult to do in a hospital environment because of all the things that we're talking about. So when we talk about birth, it's really important to help people understand that the stories and the images that we have seen, because the majority of people are delivering in a hospital environment, that when we talk about birth, you have to separate out what true physiologic birth, like a mammal, what is happening inside of that and how to honor and respect that and what's happening in a more medicalized system. Um, it's not the same thing. And even though both of those, a woman is, is, you know, releasing a baby from their body, right? But how that's happening and what's happening and the nuances of that are so vastly different. And it just kind of solidified for me again, like midwives for the win, you know, home birth for the win, because when you're in your own environment and you've had this relationship with this provider for months at a time, getting to know them and understand their fears and their and how they relate and what's important to them, you're coming into their environment. So they already are feeling more safe and in control because it's it's their home. And they know you. It's and when you go into a hospital environment, there's so many potentially unknowns in that environment. Birth is going to be unknown already because either you haven't experienced it before, or just the mystery of of each delivery is so different, right? But you know, all of these people coming in and out, and all of the procedures, and all the equipment, and all of these things that aren't really necessary for physiologic birth are just interfering with that process. And in my opinion, which is what I'm always trying to help people understand, I think it makes it less safe. I think when we intervene in the physiologic process, unless it's absolutely needed, um, makes birth less safe. We have more hemorrhages. We have more babies that aren't doing what they physiologically would do in terms of breastfeeding and transitioning and all of the things that we we see when we don't interfere with birth. And so as you were talking about that, I think it just highlighted for me, like, this is why I'm such a fan, <laughs> obviously, of uh, midwives and home birth. Yeah. Yeah. And the research shows that very clearly, doesn't it? And, you know, they say, though, technically it's, it's as safe for a baby to be born at home as they are in a hospital. But when, when they're talking about as safe, they're talking about is the baby alive? 
you know, we're not then considering also when you are birthing at home, how much more likely breastfeeding is to be successful and the massive long-term health benefits for that, how much more likely your parents are going to be feeling empowered by their experience and happy and joyful and that they have had all those form that wonderful amazing dance of hormones that um <clears throat> dr sarah buckley speaks about very eloquently on her blogs about what this this magical process that is happening that is interfered with as soon as you step out of your door um from your home and go to the hospital yeah or yeah, i want to just i want to just say something that reminded me at the breach conference I was I was comparing statistics that said that vaginal breech birth is essentially the same as vaginal cephalic uh, birth and very close to uh, um, cesarean for breech birth. And so I was saying that as a defense of vaginal breech birth. But one of the people at the attend at the conference said, well, when you say that vaginal breech birth and cesarean breech birth, there's no difference. Then then one of the people said, well, then. Why shouldn't you have a C-section then? There's no difference. We should just do a C-section. That's what they said. Yeah, that and was, was like, me. I was saying that because that's what doctors would say in the UK. That's what you, that was you? Oh, I couldn't remember who yeah. it was. But it's a it's a very funny point. So now, now we got to the point where you, you were going before, which I think is really important, in the comparison of how women are treated in the hospital with, with an abusive relationship. And I, and I think your paper, which is very well referenced, by the way, I mean, you got over 30 references your paper it's not this is not an opinion piece this is a this is a fact-based piece so could you elaborate on that issue and the correlation and then the 13 points that you mentioned yeah okay so to to make clear that all of these points and these things that have been said have either been said to clients when i've been there by their um doctors or midwives um, or I've been told by people that have then booked me for subsequent births because of the experience they had previously. So it's comparing uh, people being abused in a domestic abuse situation to how people are being treated by their medical provider. So the first point is that uh, an abusive person will try to isolate you from your friends and family. Okay, so they're taking away your support network. And in the UK here, especially after COVID, but it still happens now, if you go into uh, triage to be assessed before you're then, you know, decided whether you're in labour enough to uh, warrant support, um, you, you know, sometimes they'll say, you know, your birth partner has to wait outside. They can't come in for this bit. And very often what will then happen is that suddenly somebody will have a cannula in that they didn't want. They'll have had a vaginal exam that they didn't want because they don't have the support of, of uh, their doula or their partner or both of them with them and because they are more compliant because they're in that high oxytocin state in the labor and also just to try and get some support if you're if you're in labor and you you know you've come out of your home environment often you will just say yes to anything to try and to try and get help so it's that's an abuse of power in itself um <laughs> the second one is to have a part, uh, you know, abusive person closely monitoring your activity, so keeping an eye on everything you're doing. And you know, in a in a you know pregnancy and birth situation, you know, okay, we've got to weigh you, step on these scales, even if you don't want it, and then pass judgments on your on your BMI, you know, and and dictate whether you are allowed certain things because of that 
even though it's not evidence-based. I think you spoke with uh, Dr. Sarah Wickham recently about all of that sort of thing. Uh, point three, uh, denying your freedom. So uh, we you need to be on the monitor, basically tied down to the bed. Yeah. No, no, you can't you can't roll over onto your back because we lose the trace on the baby. You don't want your baby to be in danger, do you? Yeah. Or you can't leave until X, Y, and Z has been done. I actually said with some clients once that um this is a hospital, it's not a prison. We are leaving now. Because the midwife said, You have to you have to stay here, you have to express you have to express colostrum and then I have to feed your baby. I said, no, you don't. And then I've been supporting people breastfeeding for 17 years. They want to go home. We're going to, their home is five minutes away. We're going home. They're getting naked in bed and skin to skin and we're feeding the baby. You don't need to touch the baby. Not a prison. So that's another thing. Um, gaslighting. So claiming it's your fault that your baby might die. So I had a client who was uh, forcibly, her labor was augmented with oxytocin. Um, she was, it was during the beginning of COVID. So she was actually sent a letter to say that her labor would be augmented and she would be given an epidural because that was the procedure that was happening at the hospital, whether people wanted it or not. So with the synthetic, uh, so it's Pitocin in America. So with the Pitocin in, when she was contracting, the, the baby's heart rate was uh, decreasing a lot. Um, and she was uncontrollably not able to stop pushing. Um, and uh, the midwife forced her face around to look at the monitor and told her, look what you're doing to your baby. You're killing your baby by pushing. You need to stop pushing. Yeah. So blaming her for a contraction that she had absolutely was was out of her control. Yeah. Um, constantly criticizing We're all you. being quiet. We're being quiet, Shelley, because... These are so good. Yeah, I mean, just they're really harrowing. Yes, roll, it's hard to going. listen to. Just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's sorry to everyone at home. Get, get, give yourself a big hug and get a hot chocolate or something to cope with this. It's really hard to listen to. Um, so, uh, yeah, constantly criticizing you and putting you down. Um, and this is something I hear a lot from clients. You know, they go to see them, you know, they go in early labor or something like that. Um, and it often happens, I find, with the malposition. So I'm really interested in biomechanics because of my background in osteopathic medicine. And, you know, if a baby's in a bit of a funky position, often you can get contractions that are so painful, more than you get at transition. But in, in an in a institution, they're so dilation-focused that they'll do a vaginal exam and say to you, well, you're only two centimeters now. If you think it's bad now, just wait until, wait until later. Yeah, which is just outrageous. Yeah. Sadly, I, I I remember early in my career me saying this, me saying that, because that's how I was, you know, I was I was mimicking the the education and the and my mentors, uh, mentors, right? Good word. Um, that I you know that I was trained that I trained with. So I I remember saying that you you know, and I remember hearing people um, laughing at women who said, "I'm going to do this without an epidural." Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, wait. You'll just wait. You just wait and see, right? Okay. Yeah, I had that with my baby. I said, "I'm having a home birth." <laughs> For your first one. Oh yeah, you'll come in. You'll want all the drugs. Uh, right. No, I didn't. Um. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Where are we now? Uh, number six. Number six. Okay, number six. 
forcing you to live by their rules. Yeah, well, we have to do a vaginal exam before you can get in the pool. What? Well, you need to be four centimeters before you get in the pool. Really? Do I? Do I just want some a warm bath to help me with this intense sensation? Do you really need to put your fingers in my vagina? Um, number seven. So parental alienation. So turning you against your baby or turning your baby against you. And that's all oh, your baby's getting tired now. You know, they're getting tired. So we're going to have to give you a cut. We're going to cut you to get baby out faster. Yeah. Yeah. So then what does that leave people with? This this overwhelming feeling that it was their fault that something happened with their baby. Yeah, that and, they're and inadequate. Fault, is it? Yeah, and yeah. that they're doing something wrong, that they're hurting their baby. What's actually hurting the baby? Probably because somebody's got them on their back in stirrups, compressing the vena cava, and so the blood flow to the uterus isn't as good, and that's what's causing the problem. <laughs> but no, nonsense, Shelley. Not nonsense. <laughs> you're thinking. Yeah, you're 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 having logical thinking. That's not allowed. Not allowed. Um, policing your lifestyle choices. Okay, so, oh, your BMI's a bit high. You better not put on any weight this pregnancy, even though you've got to grow a baby and a placenta and all that fluid. You know, we wouldn't want you getting any bigger. Ooh, what, what have you, what are you having for breakfast? That's not very healthy, is it? Um, making jealous accusations. I know this is one we get a lot. I think with disgruntled people in work who are a bit annoyed about life in general. And, well, we'd all like a natural birth, wouldn't we? We'd all like to be able to get in a pool. But, you know, tough. You've got the, you've got the tiniest room with the bright lights, and that's just how it is. And all these things um, you're describing <laughs> what an abusive relationship would be like then. All these things would be being done, say, from an abusive husband to his wife then, right? Is that is that what we're, yeah. we're talking about? All these yeah. these are exactly the same thing okay depriving you of access to help and support so yeah you know in a in an abusive relationship stopping your contact with other people hiding your phone doing things like that but it, you know in a hospital environment it's you know we have we're going to do a vaginal exam before we let you have pain relief I, I was at a home birth where the midwives came and said well, we might run out of gas and air, so we need to do an exam to see where you are before we give you gas and air because we might run out. That's that's not okay. If you need to, if you need more gas and air, you can go and get some more. It does not give you a right to put your hands in someone's vagina, which isn't going to tell you how long they're going to need the gas and air for anyway. You know, it's yeah, crazy. Um, yeah, they do that same thing, think- Shelley. They do that same thing with epidurals in the hospital too. They'll say, well, we can't give you your epidural yet because you're not in active labor. Now, there is a downside to getting epidurals anyway. But but if a woman is in, in pain and you're you're basically saying, well, I got to check you because if you're not four or five centimeters, we really can't give you the epidural because it will knock out your labor. I mean, there's some truth to the fact that it will slow down their labor, but it's the same sort of thing. You, know, you can't have this unless you let us do that. Yeah. And, you know, I tell people all the time that I'm not going to tell them they can't get in the tub. I do let them know that it could slow things down, but that might be what they 
desire or need because if anybody told me I couldn't get in the tub in my labor, I probably would have punched them because <laughs> it was so helpful for me. So I can guide them and give them some information about that. But ultimately, it's their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh regulating your bodily autonomy so somebody like taking control over it so obviously an abusive relationship it might be comments like oh are you going to eat that pudding as well you've already had a main course oh that that might go straight on your thighs you know something like that but in a hospital environment like well no you can't drink or eat in case you need a cesarean you know you might have to have surgery so you can't eat never mind the fact you need <laughs> hydration to for your uterus to work or even or, something like well we're worried about the baby so you can't get up to go to the bathroom you'll need to pee on a bedpan yeah yeah we talked about that in the course didn't we yeah they, where they didn't want to take someone off continuous monitoring so they said no you've got to poo in the bed in a bedpan rather than being able to get up and go to the toilet for five minutes mm. it's abusive you know yeah. it's a, it, this is the thing it is if you if any of these happened in a situation outside of hospital they're on a list of abusive things happening in relationships where someone needs to get away from that and go into a shelter and yet this is happening all day every day in 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 institutions and people are just accepting it that it that this is normal that it's okay and there's a common thread through all these, Shelley, and it's the like the old saying: the uh, welfare of humanity is always the alibi of tyrants. It's 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 safety. It's it's using safety as a hammer, uh, or false a fault. I mean, obviously, false sense of safety um, to get you to do what you want to do. It's pure pure manipulation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so number twelve is making violent threats. Um, and I think we can all understand what that would be in a in an abusive relationship. But, you know, in in a birth situation, it might be, well, we're going to hold you down so that we can put this IV in because we want it there just in case. Or we're going to cut you because you're not pushing hard enough and we need your baby to come out. Um, you know, these kind of things. And I, I, I can't remember the stat in the study, but it was uh, quite scary. I, I can't remember where the paper was from somewhere in Europe where they had the number of people that had unconsented episiotomies was really high, like 45% or something. Like it was shocking, like shockingly high. Um, so when people say, you know, I get, I got a lot of uh, kickback from when I did this reel on Instagram talking about these things from people very upset with me saying, well, midwives don't do this kind of thing. RNs don't do this kind of thing. And then of course, all the other hundreds of comments of people saying, I experienced exactly that you know, because right. it's hard to hear your behavior being compared to abuse it's hard to swallow that but it it, it is what it is i'm calling a spade a spade yeah and, and it gets back and to the, the whole thing about wait oh shelly gets back to the whole thing about cognitive dissonance and the example i gave about unnecessary c-sections it's like there there's six hundred thousand unnecessary c-sections done in my country every year but nobody goes home and says yeah i did some unnecessary c-sections today everybody's everybody's every c-section the guy does is necessary yet half are unnecessary, right? Right. Yeah, and the final one, if it's not too depressing, <laughs> is uh, blackmailing you. So often people will pretend to be friendly and uh, um, or act friendly in order to coerce you or to get you to do something or to get information out of you. 
And in, in the UK, you know, there's this, there's a lot more people wanting to free birth. Um, and maybe people are a bit nervous, so they've said they want a home birth, but then they don't call. And then you have a midwife going, well, was was the baby really born before arrival or, you know, were you were you intending not to call us? And then if you tell the wrong answer that they go off and, you know, incorrectly contact social services as a question as to whether you're a safe parent or not. You know. Is that something yeah, that it. happened for yeah. free birth? Yeah. Where yeah, you... there's more, more free birth happening in the UK. Yeah. No, I mean, is it illegal? Will they, is it? No, no but they will every, no, every but free birther will, will get an investigation though? Not, not everyone. Often, so often people will like that, you know, a midwife who doesn't realize that free birth is perfectly legal, it's a perfectly valid mm-hmm. choice, will mm-hmm. refer um, to social services. And then often, you know, the, the social services, uh, CBS in the UK, in the USA, uh, will we'll come around and see that you're perfectly fine and it's okay. But the thing is, it's a privilege. It's a privileged situation. If you're a white middle class person that's choosing to free birth and then social services come around, it's probably be signed off like, oh, it's okay. But yeah. if you are other, you know, if if you are a minority, if you are not, um, you know, so financially able, then it may not be such an easy thing and you may have more difficulty. So it's a, yeah, it's something to recognize that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be able to free birth, even though technically it's legal choice and valid yeah. choice in the UK. Yeah. yeah I would wow. like to remind everybody listening, we just went through those 13 things. And I don't have the UK's guidelines, but the guidelines from the American Medical Association, the American College of OBGYN read like this. As my, This is part of it. Obstetricians and gynecologists are discouraged in the strongest possible terms for the use of duress, manipulation, coercion, physical force, or threats, including threats to involve the courts or child protective services to motivate women toward a specific clinical decision. And yet every one of those things you just read, pretty much every one of them, was an exact violation of our code of ethics. And it goes on every day, all the time. Yeah. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor, BirthFit. (laughs) They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member, as our friend Lindsay had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. 
I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, the birth community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code INSTINCTS1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program or go to birthfit.com, use the code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Hey, I'm wondering, can I can I read from your article the difference in how you could counsel someone using coercive language? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because um, I think that might be helpful. Um, so example one, you said, using language to coerce, we need to know where you are in labor in order to admit you. It is hospital policy that you need to be four centimeters dilated, just so you know before we start there's a very small risk of infection or accidentally breaking your water. So if if you're okay to just hop up on the bed, we can do a little vaginal exam. Don't worry, I can close the curtain. So that sounds benign. It's like, oh, okay, they, they gave me information. But in the next one where you say gaining informed consent, I don't see a preference here regarding vaginal exams in your notes. Is it okay for me to speak with you about that now? If you need me to pause at any time, just let me know. You can decline for any reason and at any time, and I will support you in your decision. I would like to offer some information for you to make a decision that feels right for you. You are welcome to ask questions or stop me or, or ask me to stop at any time. It is an expectation of my role to offer you a vaginal exam every four hours under the hospital policy and guidelines. However, it is not evidence-based to assess labor progress in this way, current evidence shows that the understanding of labor progress patterns on which the policies are based is not correct. But this form of monitor monitoring is still widely used under the NHS guidelines, which is where you live. Um, there's no evidence that vaginal exams can accurately assess labor progress for you and your baby. There is evidence that they may negatively influence your labor progress and that the risk of infection for your baby is increased with each subsequent examination. Some people like to know an estimate of dilation of their cervix, even though it doesn't give an accurate indication of how long the labor will take from here. And most being satisfied, um, I'm sorry, and most report being satisfied with their vaginal exam experience. Others find it painful and or embarrassing. And for a few vaginal um, exams associated with post-traumatic stress. So it's completely up to you. It goes on in your article and I won't read it all, but you can see the difference um, in the languaging and talking about what is evidence-based and what is not. And even talking about just your own personal experience of this is an important thing. And that at any point you can ask me to stop 
or you can change your mind. Um, and so I think that that's really great to discuss because so many people wouldn't necessarily be able to see without the contrast in language that the first one is coercive. It just feels like a, oh, yeah, sure, of course, I'll let you do this thing. So I thought that that was really great. And can I just add yeah. that, the, that what's the main difference between the two consent methods? Information and respect. Well, my point would be that time. Mm -hmm. Time. One takes time. Yeah. The other doesn't take much time. Yeah. And again, the system does not allow that kind of time. And this gets back to the theme of our podcast over and over and over again is the system is, is destructive. It's not fixable. It's, it's not, I mean, it's not going to get better. And as I've seen the years that I've been teaching my course and traveling, it's only getting worse. Countries are only getting worse. C-section rates are not, are not falling. Induction rates are rising everywhere. Episiotomy rates are, are still ridiculously high. Satisfaction rates low, post-traumatic stress high. Um, I, don't, I don't see it really getting better. And as, as Shelly, and we, we joke about it too, I mean, I, I had a slide which I talked about putting lipstick on a pig, but Shelly starts out by saying, putting twinkly lights in a room and some nice curtains and stuff doesn't, 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 isn't what's necessary. What's necessary is treating people with dignity. And treating people the following the golden rule that we all learned when we were in first grade, you know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. And that's not the way you'd want to be treated if that was you or your family member there. Right. Hmm. So I'll just leave it at that. The system that's the problem. The doctors and nurses in the system are victims of it, but they're also part of the problem. Because they all have the right. I know it's hard. They all have the right to walk away or go on strike, or do something to make a change. But they don't. You know, they're not sheep. I mean, they're sheep, they're not shepherd. We need more shepherds. Yeah. Shelly, your article is brilliant. I'm so excited to be able to share it with everyone. And, um, and thank you for coming on today and sharing your wisdom with us. We love not only your perspective and your humor, but as Stu would say, we love your accent. So <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun to have you on. And I just had a client the other day tell me she really loves hearing the podcast when we interview people from other countries because it just gives us a perspective of what's happening more globally rather than our just limited perspective. So, um, and some of it is, as we can see, you know, so similar. We're just human beings trying to make our way through this nutty system um, in all the countries. Yeah. So yeah. from my point, my perspective, Shelly, if you have anything else that you'd like to add, not from the perspective of Dr. Gloomy, but maybe of the perspective of Shelly or, or, or do a dialogue with yourself. I don't care, but I mean, how would you like, you know who our listeners are for the most part? Um, are, this, the word is spreading. People are getting the th getting the idea. There's much more dissatisfaction out there. Women are making demands. Clearly, things are. Not, I just said they're not changing in the right direction, but it's not bad enough yet. Things have to get worse before people will eventually wake up. 
So do you have anything that you'd like to tell? And then also tell people how to get a hold of you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'd agree with that because I think what people don't realize is that as it is currently and has it as it has always been organized, institutional birth is inherently unethical. You know, the, the doctors, the nurses, the midwives have a, a duty to do what the institution tells them, which seemingly overrides their duty of care to the person that they're supposed to be looking after. And institutionalized birth and practices from their very in intervention and uh, you know, invention and introduction have sought to undermine the innate wisdom, you know, to belittle the worries or the intuitions or the feeling of women um, and to belittle their opinion, much like societally we have always been taught to do. And we need we do need to wake up and realize that, you know, the institution does not necessarily have your best interests at heart. The people in it may, but they may be, you know, prevented from doing what you want because of the because of the power of the institution. Um, and you know, read the research and understand that hospital is not necessarily the safest place or the best place to birth your baby and if you can seek out someone to help you who aligns with your values and what feels important for you um, and as I've said in some of my reels we plan for our wedding days for big parties for events you know we study and we learn and we find the things that feel important to us and we invest in that and why is why is everybody not doing this for their birth? You know, even if you can't afford stuff, there are a lot of you know things out there that are affordable. There's a lot of free information about um, to learn and educate yourself. And because you you only give birth a few times in your life, even if you're planning a big family, it's such an important such an important thing um, to have loving support around you and to feel cared for is just really a wonderful thing to do. Um, so yeah, seek, seek out, seek out help, <laughs> seek out information. Uh, and you can find information on my website, which is, uh, um, the .uk. Um, and you can find me on Instagram as at the serenity doula again. Um, <clears throat> and I have on my, on my bio, there's a, a link there to a lot of bite of the bite-sized birth lectures that I've done. So I do kind of two hour, two and a half hour lectures in various subjects and, I record them so they're available for people to buy the recordings on various subjects if they're interested um, and I also are very happy to jump on zoom to have a chat with people if they have any questions or want to speak about the I talk about birth all day so um, yeah get in touch right. like <laughs> so, and you know I was going to say feeling cared for is more than just a nice thing it's a human right yeah like, we need to feel cared for and connected, especially when we're going through something as intense and life-changing as bringing our babies earthside. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm, I, I'm a little jealous that I didn't get to spend five days with you on a boat, but um, I'm so glad that Stu brought you on and I got to get a little taste of um, the time that you guys spent together. Oh, well, next time you'll have to come along too, Blitz. You might uh, yeah, if I wasn't so busy being on call, I would love to. <laughs> thank, thanks, Shelly. And say say hi to Simon and Seb, okay? You can drop do. off. Like. I will okay. do. You take bye -bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.
Oh, so that's so great. So we're gonna we're gonna we'll link her article that we that yeah. we sort of spent time on. And uh, so, what do you think? Oh, she's great. I I love like I said, I love watching her stuff on Instagram. So it was nice to have a more in depth conversation with her. And I really really enjoyed the article, and I'm glad that we are talking about it. They're they're very smart people. She and her husband Simon. Mm-hmm. And it was lovely to spend that kind of time with them. They are great hosts. They, you know, they made my stay there. I was a little skeptical, you know, about, I like being in a hotel when I'm traveling. So I have a little downtime there, you know, when you have four people on a six foot wide boat, I mean, granted it's really long, but uh, when you have it, I was worried about it would be a little claustrophobic, but I really enjoyed their company and they were very respectful of my space my my four feet of space, but they were very respectful and and it was a great time. And and we got had some great conversations. And one of which was we we ate out a lot. We had a lot of chips. And chips obviously in England are French fries for us. And we I would always ask for ketchup. And the ketchup tastes slightly different. So I looked on the label and the ketchup basically is tomatoes, salt, vinegar. That's no sugar. It. Mm-hmm. So then I was shopping this morning and I took a picture of the label of the ketchup bottle here and it's got <laughs> syrup in it and it's got a bunch of other things in it that aren't there because European countries are, are I think they're still protecting their citizens from all the crap that's in American food. Yeah. And there were many other things that, that the, you know, the French bread there, it's so fresh you know, I can't get that in Canab, but also um, it's just bread. There's nothing else in it. If you put this fresh bread out and you left it out a day, it would be ruined. You take yeah. French bread by the United States and leave it out on your counter. It's it's still good a week later. It's still good. Yeah. You know, and you wonder why. <laughs> it <lasts a> thousand <laughs> <years>. Yeah. <laughs> Apples, even. Uh, you know, our fruit are coated with things. And, and in, in England, you don't get that. In, in Ireland, you didn't get that. So, yeah. And this is why travel is so important, you know, is because we get outside of our own perspective and the, our own culture to be able to see, like, not everybody lives the way that we do. So it's um, it's very helpful to be able to I do that. I didn't, I didn't watch TV the entire time I was in England. That's amazing. That's great. Right. You're busy we living have- life. We we got back to the we got back to the, to the I want to call it the ship. We we got back to the boat, and you know we poured whiskey. I mean Simon and I drank whiskey, and we um we talked. Yeah. And we were all on our phones scrolling and doing things and messaging. But in the meantime, we're just talking. This is that was great. It was so great. And again, I live alone here most of the time, so I don't have that kind of conversation. Um, but when somebody wanted downtime, they had downtime, but, but we just had conversations and then it got dark. And if you didn't turn the TV on, you know, it's eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock. Yeah. Well, let's go to bed. You just go to bed. Right? Yeah. yeah. Nice. I love so, that. Well, it was good to see you. Thank you. It's really good to Welcome be back. Home. I will possibly see you uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, I'll be in Los Angeles, uh, for Thanksgiving this year because my son is getting married. Uh, on Thanksgiving? On the Saturday after. Oh, awesome. That week. Right. Yeah. So hopefully we'll see that. And uh, definitely come see me. Yeah. 
and then we'll talk about a lot of we got a lot of things we got a little irons on the fire we've got to start to uh to put them in order don't we yeah so um if you guys haven't gone to our new website birthinginstinctspodcast.com and joined our mailing list make sure to do that um there is a free document there how to how to choose a practitioner um that you can get access to just by putting in your email and we'll keep you abreast of all of the amazing changes and building community that we are up to and we're so excited about right so support our sponsors birth fit needed element and until next time bye-bye Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 